0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. Uh, If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 57 um, as you may have noticed from Aaron's <laughs> intro, he's playing hurt today. Uh, he, he, no. is, he woke up with his voice being gone. So the plan is for me to uh, try and shoulder the brunt of a lot of the talking today, with Aaron being able to interject. And then we'll see we'll see how he feels when we get to his section of numbers at the end. We might we might break that up a little bit as well. But you <laughs> we'll know, see. listeners, this is exciting. Uh, in years past, we we might have been like, hey, let's just not record this week. But not not so this year, listeners. We are dedicated and we want to get. That full 52. It's so true. So true. All right. Well, if you uh, have any questions, remember at the end of each podcast episode, we take the time to answer a question and you can email us at info at grove.church. Just make sure you use the subject line, a Let's Read the Bible podcast question or a podcast question. That way they get forwarded to us. You can also direct message our Grove Church Facebook page or our Grove Church Instagram. You can find both of those at the Grove Ch. All right. Well, this week we are kicking off Numbers. Whoa. It's a good. It's a good time. The book of Numbers. Um, it is so called because it is not book ended because the second one's not the end, but it's kind of divided in between two separate censuses or numberings, which is where we get the name of the people of Israel. So it's kind of a look at two different generations of Israelites. And listeners, let me tell you, if you were, as we've been reading the last few weeks, if you've been frustrated with this generation of Israelites and you've thought to yourself, man, like, you know, th- it seems like they don't get it. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> it gets, it gets much, much. I don't know if it gets worse because the golden calf thing is already like, it's a pretty low starting point. That's but, very true. But they don't exactly rise. They don't exactly rise above that. Listeners. No, you're right. So, yeah.
1: We'll, but, but here's the deal though. We're out of Leviticus. Can we just be honest? Woo! So we've made it past Leviticus. So hopefully you've stuck with us. Good job.
0: Oh yeah. And we're almost, we're almost through the law in general. We're almost into complete narrative portions, so this will be a good time. And I'm actually really excited for the the chronological reading plan as we move forward here a little bit to be able to intermix the history books with the prophetic books. And so you can really see exactly when in the moments of Israel's history, the prophets are doing their thing. So I think I think that'll be really cool. But anyway, that's that's in the future. We are talking about numbers today. So the book begins with the first numbering of the people. In chapter one, we see uh, a census of Israel's men of fighting age. And this is Judah leads the way with about 75,000 men, give or take. And then Manasseh brings up the caboose with about 32,000. I kind of assumed that Benjamin would be the smallest tribe and Benjamin's second to the second smallest, but Manasseh is only 32,000. I just fighting thought
1: men. that you said caboose.
0: Brings up the caboose. Yeah. A little train metaphor. Uh, And this would mean that the theoretical army of Israel at this time was about 603,550. So that's all the men of fighting age at, in Israel at this point. Not, not in Israel, but in the, in the nomadic wanderings of the people of Israel. Uh, We also find out that the Levites were exempt from this numbering as the army of the Levites was to guard the tabernacle, not go off to war. Which is interesting because I guess I've always imagined the Levites as just kind of, you know, chilling, they're priests, they're nice. But like, no, like they also had, there was an army of Levites. Their job was just, they didn't leave. Like they they, they guarded the mm-hmm. tabernacle. So if the camp was ever invaded, you ran up against the Levite army is basically what would go down. So cool, cool deal there. Uh, in chapter two, we see how the Israelites were to be arranged during both marching and being encamped. Um, It's a long description of basically where all the tribes were going to go. The important, the two important points are these Uh, Judah leads the way during a March. So Judah is front and center. And there's two tribes. I should have written down which ones. I think it's Issachar and Zebulun are around them. Yeah. And then so too. And then uh, when the camp is set up, the tabernacle is at the center and during marches, tabernacle is always in the center and it's always surrounded by the Levites. So the Levites, that that is their job. Their job is, listen, no one touches the tabernacle. No one goes in the tabernacle. No one steals the holy... The holy objects inside of the tabernacle. That that is their job. And so and you can see how central the presence of God is to the encampment and to the marches, because the tabernacle is always found at the center. Particularly the tent of meeting is always right in the center of the camp. And then everything surrounds it. So that if you're an invader, if you wanted to destroy the tabernacle, you would have to go through a fourth of the tribes plus Levi. Bring Bring it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, bring it, bring it on. I was thinking Emperor's New Groove there, but great movie. Uh, starting in chapter three, we get two separate censuses of the Levites. Uh, the first lists every male over one month old, uh, so not not just men of fighting age. Unless you, you know, I guess you could try and give a sword to a baby, but that probably wouldn't go super well for that the might child. Hurt
1: themselves first.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to fight very well. Uh, and then this is divided into the clans of Gershon, Koath, and Meri with Moses and the priests act, acting as sort of another clan for with the defenses of the tabernacle. So when the camp is set up, the Levites completely surround the tabernacle and the clans each take a side. I don't remember which ones on which sides, but each clan takes a spot and then Moses and the priests kind of act as a fourth clan. And I believe they are facing east, if yeah. I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, because the
1: tabernacle faces east and they camp in front of it. Boom, there you
0: go. Uh, chapter three ends with an interesting aside where the Levites... So God... Specifically says, you know, I'm calling the Levites to me. They they are mine. Um, they are set aside for my service. Which a like that's kind of a really big honor as a Lev- as the Levites. I also I, I didn't pick up on this when we were reading through Exodus because I so full disclosure listeners the end of chapter three. I was super confused. <laughs> I had to read it like three times and then still like go look through like all the study notes that I have and like figure out, okay, like what is happening here? Um, I don't know if I fully understand it, but I think I got it. I got, I think I got it handled. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was one of the study Bibles remarked that perhaps the Levites are set aside here because of their loyalty during the gold, golden calf incident. Uh, and I never picked up on that, hmm. that when Moses comes down from the mountain, the Levites meet him there. And then Moses commands the Levites to go, and, and that's where they go, and they slaughter a, a certain amount of the people. Yeah. So that means the Levites did not engage in the worship of the golden calf. Way to go! So yeah, go go Levi, way to redeem your uh, your ancestor from the whole Shechem thing. That's a good deal. So he was an idiot. Oh, come on, but yeah, no. So, I anyway, that's just an aside from a few weeks ago. We didn't bring that up in Exodus, honestly, because we just kind of missed it. So, or I, I missed it. I shouldn't say. I shouldn't speak for Aaron there. Uh, well, you might have to today. So that's fair. All right. So there are 22,000 Levites, and then there's a numbering of the firstborn that happens. This seems to be a numbering of the firstborn children who were born after the start of the Exodus. uh, And this number is to 22,273. And so a ransom is paid for the extra 273 people. So there's an extra 273 firstborn past the number of Levite priests. Um, And so... God says essentially there's not because there's not a one-to-one ratio, there's an offering that is paid as a redemption price for those firstborn as well. Like I said, I still don't have a full handle on what's going on there, but I understand it a little bit better than I did when I first read it because it, it took it took a second. It's also written very confusingly. <laughs> let's it's let's, very let's be honest. All right. So in chapter four, we get another census of the Levites. This time it breaks it breaks down the specific duties of each clan. So and I thought this was actually really interesting. So the koathite priests. Handle, and this is all the priests, I believe, um, especially who handle the holy items. And then the other members of the tribe are in support of the priest doing these duties. Uh, the Kohathite priests handled the holiest items in the tabernacle. So they're the ones who would carry and break down, uh, not break down, but they're the ones who would put the poles in and they would carry the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the altar and the lampstand. The Gershonites handled all of the curtains of the tabernacle, um, which maybe this is just me being ignorant of the weight of curtains, but that seems like the cushy job, you know, if you, between, between all the clans. No, they're heavy, bro. You're on the drapes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're heavier than the drapes, but, and then the Meraites, man, that's a hard one for me to say. Uh, They handled everything else. So basically all of the bronze pillars and stuff like that. And then it breaks down, actually, they have like ox carts and stuff like that because they had the heaviest items.
1: And isn't the Kohathites, they carry... The, the holy items, they don't put them on a cart, right? Correct.
0: Yeah, they, they put the poles in, carry on the shoulders. Yep. So yeah, those guys, those are the ripped priests. Those are the guys yeah. who are going for it. Uh, in chapter five, we begin a section which elaborates on some of the law that we saw in Exodus and Leviticus. And so it's just kind of a reminder of some things that God has already said. Uh, the people are reminded that to keep those who are leprous and then some types of unclean out of the camp. So remember, they stay at the outskirts until they can be proven to be clean, uh, not unclean anymore. Uh, it also lays out the way that confession and restitution was to work. So it, it brings us back to that principle of making things right. You confess it to the person that you have stolen from or wronged, and you restore them with an extra 20% or a fifth on top of that. And then there's also a ceremonial test for adultery which is really interesting. And again, it's just talking about super interesting. Yeah. Reading it today, you're just like, all right, this is weird. But basically it's like, if it's a suspected thing, there's sacrifices that are to be made. There's offerings that are to be made and there's tests that are to be done. So there you go. Uh, Chapter six gives us the requirements of the Nazarite vow, which if you're thinking to yourself, Nazarite, that sounds familiar. There's three really famous Nazarites and they would be Samson, probably the most famous as far as famous for the fact that he is a Nazarite. Samuel, who I didn't remember, was a Nazirite. So, there you go. I always picture Samuel as clean cut, but that would not have been the case. So, there you go. Uh, And then John the Baptist, who I also never picture as clean cut. So, (laughs) John the Baptist makes a ton of sense. Uh, Samson, obviously, famously being a Nazirite because a certain someone... Uh, you know, cuts his hair, but we'll, we'll get hey to there, that. Delilah
1: with, oh,
0: What's kidding. it like in New York city? Yeah. We'll get to her. We'll get to her. We'll get to, I shouldn't even just say her cause Samson's also, he deserves a fair share of the blame in that story, oh. but that's, that we're a few weeks away from that. Uh, at the end of this section, we get one of the most famous passages in numbers. And I, I love this passage. It's great. This is in Numbers chapter six, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say it to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I love that blessing. Just, I, I mean, just to read it again, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon countenance upon you and give you peace. Uh, even just reading that, I feel peace. Like it's just, <laughs> I love, I love that blessing. It's great. Yeah. Um, moving forward, remember that numbers. We're not going to cover Numbers chapter seven through nine because we actually covered those a few weeks ago. Um, if you go back, I believe it was two episodes ago. Yeah, there was two at the end of Exodus, beginning of Leviticus. There's a little insert that we did from Numbers because it takes place in between those two books, and so. If you want, if you want to hear more about that, go back to that episode uh, in chapter ten. I don't. I just thought this was like nifty, <laughs> I guess, to learn, but I hadn't thought about it before. Um, how are the people? So the cloud of yeah, the presence. I about this too. Yeah, the cloud of the presence of God moves. In my head, I just think, oh yeah, everyone's like, hey, look, the cloud's moving. Let's pack up and go. But yeah, obviously, if you're at the outskirts of the camp, you wouldn't immediately notice this. Um, and true. so there's two silver trumpets, and they are. Uh, Every time the cloud begins to move, they're blown and it's alerting all the people of Israel to know, hey, pack up, we're getting ready to move. So it's just kind of, you know, a little practical, a little practical thing that you can add to your imagination when you're reading these chapters. Um, After this, the people leave Sinai and they travel to Kadesh, which is right on the southern border of Canaan. So they get, here's the deal, Aaron, we kind of, I guess I shouldn't spoil this if this is your first time reading through the Bible. A, Welcome. Glad you're doing it. Uh, So I guess we don't have to spoil what happens. But here's the deal. They get real close. They are right on the precipice of the promised land. Uh, But let's see, you know, in a little, we'll talk about later in this episode if they actually managed to cross over and take hold of it, which they don't. So, uh, and then now here's the deal, listeners. This is going to shock you. Uh, They're in Kadesh. They're right there. And you're not going to believe it the people of Israel start to complain. I know, I know, what? it's it's crazy. No, the, this, not God's people. This generation of Israelites, they've been doing everything right so far. They've just been crushing it in the wilderness. Um, and now they are starting to complain. Uh, first, they complain about how hard this all is, to which God responds. <laughs> I, I love this. So basically, they're like, this is really hard, the whole not being slaves thing anymore. You know, now that we have our freedom, God this is really difficult. And God just responds by burning up sections of the camp. Like it's, I, don't know, I love it. It's great. Go, way, way to go. Don't take any grief from these guys. Um, so Moses prays and God relents. Um, and here's the deal. It gets even more obnoxious. This is Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse four. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now all of our strength is dried up and there is nothing but all of this manna to look at. So it's basically like, hey, Why are you you complaining about not being slaves anymore? Like you you were crying out, deliver us 400 years in bondage and now you're free and you're just like, man, God, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. And then you're complaining about the magic bread that falls from the sky to feed you. And here's the deal. I have a diverse palate. like I enjoy I enjoy meat as much as the next guy. So I, I would probably be among these Israelites who are like, "Hey, maybe a steak once in a while. That would be pretty great." So and I, and God would rebu- would rebuke me for that. So I don't want to make this all about how the Israelites, you know, suck in this moment and I would be so much better. That's probably not true. <laughs> but reading from our perspective now, it's just like God has delivered you out of the most powerful empire in the world at that
1: point miraculously. Yeah, God- not even like by your own strength, but miraculously.
0: Yeah. There's no part of that where you can think as an Israelite, we did this. Yeah, <laughs> It's all miracles. You, you're in the middle of the desert or the wilderness. You don't know how you're going to find food. God literally makes bread fall from the sky for you. And you're complaining about the food, the, the menu, basically. <laughs> you're complaining about the menu on your way to freedom. Just come on, Israel, get it together a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and so the manna, to, to, to pick up reading again, the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellum. The people went out and gathered it and ground it in the hand mills and beat it into, in mortars and boiled it in pots to make cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping through their clans, as everyone at the door of his tent, And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. I mean, yeah, I get it. Uh, And Moses was displeased. I love this. I love this section here. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of of this people on me? Did I conceive this people... Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all of this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. I find favor in your sight. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So A, Moses is so upset. He's just, like I'm done, just kill me. If this is what they're going to be like the whole time, I also love that. Like he literally says, they're a bunch of babies because he makes the exact comparison of like it's like a nurse carrying a child on her chest. It's like this is what I'm doing. I'm just carrying around a bunch of babies. Why are you making me do this, Lord? I'm not even the I'm not even their parent. You know, I'm not your real dad, and yet you're making me do all these different things. Uh, yeah. I get it. Moses is Moses is getting pretty frustrated because apparently he is able to have some perspective on the situation they're in that a lot of the people of Israel aren't. Um, so after this, Yahweh hears Moses and he agrees, yeah, you could use some help uh, dealing with all these losers. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> and so Yahweh appoints uh, 70 men and he gives them the gift of prophecy for a short time. This is to show that God has blessed them to do it, but it does say specifically, that their gifts their gifts cease ceases after a little bit. So they're not like Moses has an ongoing gift of prophecy. He's empowered by the Spirit. This is not the case with these seventy men, uh, but they are they're set up as lieutenants of Moses. So they're able to handle some of the some of the duties. Uh, God then gives the people the gift of a gift of quail. Yay. So there's a whole big thing that happens. Quail fall from the sky. Uh, they can eat the meat. However, they get real greedy and they just devour as much of it as they can. Uh, and so God sends a great plague, which kills a decent amount of people in the camp. And so, yeah, come on, come on, Israel. You got to you gotta do a little bit better than that. Uh, after that is all resolved, we get this really, really sad scene. This is in Numbers chapter 12. And uh, as a reminder before we read this, Miriam and Aaron are Moses's sister and brother. Uh, So Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Thanks for that repetition there, just in case we didn't, which in case we missed that. Uh, And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all of the people who were on the face of the earth. So let's stop there for a second. It's really interesting to me because it says that so Moses marries a Kushite woman. Um, we don't know if this is Zipporah, who is the Midianite woman that he's already married, or if this is a second wife. I tend to view this as a second wife because it seems like it wouldn't have made the second statement before he had married a Kushite woman as if that was like new information that was being presented to us. So it seems like Moses took a second wife. Um, and if, if if it's Kush, the way that we understand it, it would be from modern day Ethiopia is where this woman is from, uh, which also presents the fact that maybe there's some, some racism going on here where Miriam and Aaron don't approve of where the woman is from and they're confronting him. But you'll notice they don't confront him about the woman. It just says that's why they did. So they were angry because of this, but then they actually... Confront Moses about essentially, hey, you know, the Lord speak, Yahweh speaks through us as well. Why are you getting all of the glory from this, uh, which is not great? And also reminds us that Moses is very meek. Remember that. I think Prince of Egypt and some other movies have kind of spoiled our image of Moses. But remember, Moses is not the one standing before Pharaoh. I mean, that's not true. He's standing there. He's not the one doing the talking. Aaron is with him. Mm -hmm. And Aaron is the one who is speaking um, on behalf of God in those moments. And so Moses is incredibly meek. He does not, he he lacks a good deal of self-confidence. And so you can only imagine how it's tearing him apart that his brother and sister are attacking him like this as well. Uh, so picking it up in verse four, it says, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. That's not good. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel yeah, like right. I just got images of like, I don't know. Like it would be like if, um, if uh pastor Nick just came into our office and was like, Hey, you two, my office now. It's like, yes, sir. Oh no. <laughs> what did I do? Um, in verse 5 it says and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward and he said hear my words if there is a prophet among you i the Lord make myself known to him in a vision i speak with him in a dream not so with my servant moses he is faithful in all my house with him i speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles and he beholds the form from the uh, beholds the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so not great. Um, and basically, they're making the point of like Moses, and it's kind of what the point that was made when the seventy men were set apart as well, that God gives gifts of prophecy to yeah. people. Moses has a special gift that he is walking in. The, Mo, God has set aside Moses specifically, He works in a different uh, in a different level of the gift of prophecy than anyone else. and and God is making it clear, Hey, Like Moses is my chosen servant. What makes you, what gives you the right to speak against my chosen servant like that? So, not great. Um, It says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Again, this clearly occupied just a massive fear. In the in the hearts of the ancient Israelites, whatever this disease is, and like we talked about, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, it's probably not what we know as modern day leprosy, although it has a lot of the same um, a lot of the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's just he said when you have it, it's that you know that you're condemned to probably die a really painful death, and you know that you're condemned to spend probably the rest of your life or a very long period of time away from the people of Israel as well. So, not great. Um, and Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of the out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. Which kudos to Moses in that moment, right? He he's been attacked in a he's been betrayed in this instance um, by Miriam, and yet he immediately cries out, asking for her forgiveness and asking for her healing. But the Lord said to Moses, "If her father had but spit in her face, she should not be shamed. Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her shut out, be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again." So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out of this march until Miriam was brought back in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So there you go. Miriam is still punished. It is interesting that Aaron isn't. And I, was kind of, I guess it kind of shows, and this is open handed. I'm just kind of reading into it. I would guess that Miriam is the kind of the ringleader of this and maybe she's bringing Aaron along on it, um, which if there's anything we learned from the golden calf incident that you can do that with Aaron, you can kind of bring, like you can, you can convince him to do really stupid things, but uh, it is really interesting there. That's funny. Well, before we get into the second half of our talk on the book of Exodus today, we do want to take a moment and say, "Hey, you know, if you haven't lift, left us a five-star review, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, um that's really helpful. It helps get the word out there to more people and grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And if you leave a written review, we will read it on the podcast, just like we're doing with Susan Otto. Hey, Susan, thanks. I like her a lot. She's incredible. She's the bomb. Thanks Thanks for for listening, listening. Susan. Uh, She says, I absolutely love listening to Evan and Aaron. I have gotten so much out of the, out of reading the books of the Old Testament. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. I love when you shared about the book of Job. I am anxious to read Evan's book on Job, which a shout out. Yeah, that's just really encouraging to me. Thank you so much. So I I sent it out, to another agency. So I'm, I'm ready to get hurt again, listeners. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, Aaron, if you want to take it away with numbers 13 through 19.
1: Yeah. Huh? As we wrap up, uh, we're actually doing a bonus chapter today because it ends a, a second cycle of rebellion, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but we we pick up chapter 13 and 14, which is where kind of the climax um, is actually the of the first cycle of rebellion. So there's actually a couple cycles that we're going to talk through. Um And so chapters 13 and 14 deal uh, with the rebellion uh, of the people to enter the promised land. so at this point uh, the spies have been sent over into Canaan to scope out the land. Uh, Moses selects 12, 12 individuals from each tribe, uh, Joshua and Caleb. And Uh, the other 10 don't matter. And the other 10 don't matter. We don't even really (laughs) know their names. Actually we do. It's another thing, but their names don't matter. Who cares? Um, But they say they go in, they experience the land. They see it's, 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 Uh, plentiful land. There's, there's great product. There's great land flowing with milk and honey. Um, But they come back in 10 of them, give a report that starts off positive. Like it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is incredible. But, uh, and they, they share a negative report about what they called Nephilim, uh, which I'll get to in a second. And they said that, Hey, they were, they were too strong uh, for us to encounter. Uh, and so the people adopted the majority report, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was the first one to, sh- to step up. And I actually really liked the way that he uh, just spoke. He's like, no, we can do this. You almost hear the desperation in his voice, trying to exhort and encourage the people that we can handle them. We can conquer them. Uh, but the majority of the people throw a fit. They take the negative report personally, and they rebel against going into the promised land. Uh, and they, in essence, just say, this isn't, this isn't what God intends. Um, and so the interesting thing here that I remember reading was, um, in, in the study notes, not necessarily in, in the chapter itself, but the whole idea was like they were rejecting God's promised land, um, was also in, in return. And I totally see it as, as a rejection of God's blessings. So in that moment, God brings them to the precipice, uh, a two year journey, getting them ready to step into the promised land. And as they send out spies, they come back defeated and discouraged. Um, and the majority of the people follow suit. they say, "Okay, we trust the ten over the two uh this is in the place, and um they i want i wanna see if I had this mark to read um yeah I did so I'll wait for a second to get there uh it's in chapter sixteen, the response that exists um uh, but when they this is the return of the promised land, when they refer to Nephilim, that's it's a reference to genesis six four which is also translated fallen ones. Um, and these were the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God or angelic beings uh, and the daughters of men. So they had much larger stature stature. But the interesting thing is, and I hadn't even thought about this till I read this um, is that the Nephilim would have been destroyed in Noah's flood.
0: Oh, right. Cause only Noah and his family.
1: And so when the Israelite people were making this reference, it's best understood as they were making an exaggerated statement to instill fear. So they came out, with this understanding, like the people are, are powerful. They're too great for us to conquer. They're like the Nephilim. They're like the giants of the, of the day. Um, and we, we can't defeat them because, and this was the other thing they said, we're like grasshoppers, uh, compared. And, and it's just a simple little fun fact, like grasshoppers were the smallest creature that was allowed to be eaten by God's commands within the, the, uh, the, the law that he sets out. Right. Um, and so they make this drastic comparison as far as the people in the land of the, of the Canaan were giants and were like grasshoppers. So there's no way we have a chance. So all the people bought into it, they rebel. And we see in chapter 15 here, which actually consists consists of three sections that address uh, some of the issues that came from rebellion uh, in chapters 11 to 14, that addresses the land uh, and the, and the need for, uh, honoring and be responsive to the land. It talks about sinfulness. And then it talks about a need to remember God and his revelation. Um, so it talks about offerings, the offerings that are required. Um, there is a, a moment in, in chapter 15 where someone is found being disobedient about the Sabbath and he actually is set aside. And then he, he's brought outside the camp because he's picking up wood on the Sabbath day. And God commanded his people to regard it as holy. He tells Moses to bring him outside the camp and everyone in the community is supposed to stone him and kill him because he didn't obey and honor God's Sabbath, which is a, which is a big bummer. Um, and we don't understand that entirely today. But again, this is God's establishing his people and expects the the holiness that he desires. Um, and then he talks about this idea of remembering God and his revelation. And he tells the Israelite people, hey, I want you to make tassels and put them on the corners of your wardrobe. And they're meant to remind you of my, my commands, so you'll obey them. Uh, I kind of liken it to a ring today for those who get married. It's a symbol of, and a reminder when I have a ring on my finger, I'm remembering the vow I made to my wife, the promise I made to my wife. Um, that's a good comparison. And so the tassels that are put on are meant to be a reminder of God's, not just God's commands, but his promises as well. Um, and then uh, to allow them and in, in, he says it in this way, like to not fall in fall, follow your heart or your eyes, um, and so the idea is idolatry there where their heart or their eyes will lead them astray and away from God. Um, and so that's chapter 15. It, it deals with those three sections, uh, about the law and the offerings, uh, regarding the land that, that he is, God is bringing them into to establish them again, because he wants to keep their people, his people separate from the world that they're stepping into. And then we see this chapter 16 to 19 actually reveals a second cycle of rebellion. This is what I was getting to, um, and there's this uh rebellion uh that exists uh with Korah. He she rises up and he is challenging Aaron as the priesthood. He is um one of the the Levites and I believe it's the Levites. I can't remember now if I'm misspeaking here. Uh but he's one of the 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 tri- he's part of the tribe that deals with the, the tabernacle, so he's gotta be a Levite. Yeah, he's gotta be Levite. Um but he rises up and 250 people follow him and, and they're challenging Aaron's priesthood. They're they're in essence inciting rebellion saying, why, why do we have to listen to you? Why did why, why are you in charge and we're not? So almost kind of a reflection of um, the, the other leaders that said, oh, well, we don't have to trust just you. God speaks to us through Aaron and, and Miriam, right. which is ironic because they're coming against Aaron. Um, long story short, God calls him out. He says, okay, you, uh, we're going, you bring uh, fire and incense and your burners and we're going to bring ours and we'll see who God selects and who God chooses. As this is playing out, God tells Moses, Hey, tell everyone to get away from Korah and his followers. So Moses walks down to their tent and say, Hey, you might want to step back. And then the entire earth opens up underneath them and swallows them whole. Oh. And Moses makes a statement. It got, we'll find out today who God, uh, who God elevates. Um, if, if, if God, if the, if the ground doesn't open up and swallow these people and they go alive down into the grave, uh, then I'm not the person to be leading my paraphrase, obviously. Um, and so obviously spoiler, you're going to read it this week. The ground opens up and swallows Korah and his followers. Then there's a plague afterwards. Uh, and it begins to creep through all of the God's people and Aaron, uh, sees it. He runs, gets his sensor, stands between the dead and the living, And the plague stops and about 14,000 people died, 14,700 to be exact. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, So there's this rebellion that happens against the priesthood Um, and the promised land, I think is interesting in chapter 16, and I I have a few other things going through this. We find this, this passage in chapter 12 or verses 12 to 14, this is when the, the rebellion has started. Moses is calling out those who are following. And he says this in verse 12. He says, Moses sent for Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Is it not enough that you brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Notice the contrast there for a second. God was bringing Israelites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Datham and Abiram said, you have brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. Do you also have to appoint yourself as ruler over us? It's in verse 14, furthermore, you didn't bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey or give us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? We will not come. And it was interesting, the contrast that they made, because it's, again, it goes back to what has already been happening when they were complaining about meat, not having meat. Man, Egypt was a better place than this. Man, Egypt provided better things for this. And rejecting God's blessings or rejecting God's provision of land was also rejecting his provision, his favor and his blessing. And so this is what's at war right now uh, among God's people, which is part of this rebellion. Um, And and after Korah and his followers all die, Aaron steps in between, stops the plague uh, because he stands between the dead and living. We then have this moment in chapter 17 where God tells Moses, hey, grab a staff, one from each tribe member and write their names on it and grab one from Aaron too, to represent the, the Levites and then put it in the tent of meeting. And Moses did, he left it in the overnight. In essence, whatever staff changes is the one that I'm electing to lead my people for the tower tabern- in the tabernacle and holiness to me. And Aaron's staff is the one that blooms. It blossoms just like back when God was working with Moses to establish him as the authority and ruler to free his people from Egypt. That's what happened is that his Aaron's staff blossomed. Moses took Aaron's staff, showed it to the people, and then definitively said, God is, Aaron is the one to lead the tabernacle for God's people, um, which is incredible. I mean, it's an incredible moment. Again, God just revealing, I've chosen whom I've cho- chosen. You don't get a say in it. Um, and and directly calls out their rebellion uh, and then demands their obedience. Um, and then we see chapter 18 where where God is establishing the provision for the priesthood. Uh, through the sacrifice and, and the support for Levites. Um, and it's it's they, they get a portion of the sacrifices that are offered um, to provide for food and to provide for sustenance uh, because of the work that they're doing for the temple and keeping God's people holy. Um, and I love the, these two verses in chapter 18 that I'll read real quick. And this is God spe- speaking to Aaron specifically. He says, I give to you and your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statute. It is a a permanent covenant assault before the Lord for you, as well as your offspring. The Lord told Aaron, you will not have an inheritance in their land. And mind you, they're on the precipice of going to the promised land and they're going to inherit land. But God was telling Aaron, Hey, you're not going to get a piece of land. Um, You will be provided for. um, So you're not going to get a portion of land. And, and we know because we, we see further in scripture, where the Levites actually are given designated places all throughout the lands uh, as a, as an ability to, to dare I use a modern word, like pastor and lead the people. Uh, and so they're a representation of God's holiness and, and within the different areas and regions that God provides to the 12 tribes. Um, but then God says this, he says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the Israelites. And that's a pretty incredible statement. That's that's a powerful moment that I think we lose. Uh, um, it loses a little bit of, of potency because of what's going on in the times. But, but Aaron is being told by God, I am everything you need. You don't need inheritance. You don't need a land. You don't need food. I will take care of you and I'm your portion and I'm your inheritance. And I think it's pretty powerful where God is, is laying himself bare saying I'm, I'm here and you will have everything you need from me, which is also the the promise of of Christ. Christ is our sustenance. Christ is our everything. Uh, and so I think that that was such a powerful, cool moment in the, in the, in the book of numbers. I almost said Leviticus. Ooh. Um, And then finally, in chapter nineteen, this ends uh, the 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 rebellion cycle that we find, where there's laws concerning a dead body uh, and having and being purified, uh, whether they come across accidentally or on purpose or with the removal of a dead body, whether it's human or animal. Um, And there's a requirement for cleansing. Three days, you're supposed to be outside the camp on day three, or seven days, you're supposed to be outside the camp. On day three, you're supposed to bathe with clean water. And then on day seven, you bathe with clean water, and then you'll be clean and be able to rejoin the community. But again, it's, it's the same filter that God has been establishing all throughout Leviticus, and continuing into numbers is this idea of being holy is, is being set apart. God's people are not meant to be compromised in any way, shape or form, but they're meant to be holy. And so even in the ritual or duties or um, coincidence that happens when there's a dead body, a corpse with no life in it left, it, prov- it makes someone unclean. And there's a need to make sure that you become clean before uh, you can return and re-engage the, the community of, of God's people. Uh, and that, That's kind of where the second cycle of rebellion ends Um, and God is continuing to move. And so we'll actually read some more next week. Uh, One of my favorite second stories in his chapter 20 in numbers, but we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. We'll get to, hopefully with a better voice too.
0: We'll get to, yeah, hopefully you're, you're recovered by that point and we'll hopefully get to the Israelites that, you know, they don't suck quite as much as, uh, as, you know, the generation that we're talking about right now. It's true. uh, Yeah. Well, listeners. That wraps it up for our Bible discussion today. However, we have a couple segments left for you. First off, we're going to talk about what we learned today. Okay. For me, it comes down to this week, the idea of keeping perspective of the gifts that God has given us, Mm. Uh, because I, I don't know, normally I try to be really gracious with people that we read about in the Bible who rebel against the Lord, because I, I think it's important for us to realize that's probably us, right? Like, I think we have a we tend to have a very high opinion of ourselves. This week, I was really struggling <laughs> with keeping that perspective because it's just like, oh, just just imagine like knowing nothing but bondage and slavery. And all of a sudden you're set free. You see mm-hmm. all of these miracles happen. Like you see the 10 plagues go down. You're brought out in the middle of the night. You walk through the Red Sea. You see the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle. You see the glory of the Lord at the top of Mount Sinai. You have the law given to you. You're being set apart as a people for the one true God. And you're complaining about just this, this how hard it is Like right now. It's like, oh my gosh, Like just take the win, Israelites. But um, for the practical application side of it, I think for us, how many times do we do that? Where we we don't keep perspective on what God has done for us. We don't keep perspective on how the Holy Spirit has been working through us and how we're growing and how um, we're continuously becoming more and more like Christ or the blessings that the Lord has given us. And instead we just complain about the season of life that we're in. Um, and we don't think of it this way. Cause the reason we think of the Israelites that way is because we have the full context of everything. Mm-hmm. We don't have the full context of our lives. And I, I think a lot of the times when we complain Uh, when we cry out, when we have poor attitudes, when we get to the end, we're going to be able to look back and say, what was I thinking? Like, obviously God knew what he was doing in that situation. So, so for me, very simple application, but I would simply say, let's try to keep perspective on the gifts that God has given us in our lives. And regardless of anything else, let's try and keep perspective of the fact that the creator of the universe loves us and has set us
1: apart as well. That's so good. Uh, I love it. Um, My application comes back from, uh, numbers, I think 12 or 13 and 14. Um, and it was just mind blowing to me in light of all of the different things and ways that God had provided for his people up to this point that 10 out of the 12 spies only saw their insignificance. And, and I was kind of processing and thinking through this a little bit. Um, and, and then, you know, lo and behold, study notes are always a great thing in a study Bible. Uh, but the it made the statement that I think is so true for us today uh, is that the focus of God's people was on their armies and the strength that they possessed, not on the power and the might of God, which led to rejection of God's promised land um and that's that's a big deal and I think I love that the because again, this isn't always planned um but hearing more about the application you said but like if we can keep the right perspective on the gifts God has given us, the provision that God has brought us, then we're able to then stay focused on his power, on his might, on his abilities, on his leading, which in then turn doesn't matter about our strengths or weaknesses. And, and I think that's such a a significant thing for us today as uh, modern day followers of Jesus, because oftentimes it's about how do I accomplish what God is asking me to do when it's, it's oftentimes not intended for us to take the reins after he gives us direction. Oftentimes it is a matter of us continue to submit and be obedient to what he's saying as he still has the reins. Um, And so I I would say like learning from the Israelites failure in this moment is really, really important for us Um, is that it's, it's not the, the focus should not be on what, what strengths I possess, what personality characteristics I have, what gifts that God has given me. But it should be based upon who God is, the power, the almighty, and the and the sovereign creator, and following him boldly and obediently to whatever he says and wherever he says to go. And so I think that's a really important piece uh, for us today, especially in modern Christianity.
0: Love that. Uh, our last segment today, we did have a question come in. So let's take a moment to answer that. Okay, I got to say. I'm actually really shocked this hasn't come in before. It's true. <laughs> so we've been doing this. We've been doing this podcast for like five years. Uh, we've had most of the kind of like big, like oh, oh, that's a great <laughs> question ones come in. Uh, so just to start off bluntly, here it is: uh, Can you lose <laughs> your salvation? Jesus's parable of the sower suggests that people can think they're saved or get caught up in the moment, but in fact, they weren't. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't know you if you acted like a Christian, but didn't really believe it. But being a Christian for ages can have that tipping point where you're just going through the motions. Paul says that Jesus died for our sins once. So stop intentionally doing dumb and naughty stuff (laughs) uh, because you are effectively acting as if Jesus will be crucified again. If you accept Christ, but then backslide intentionally or otherwise, and then die, are you really saved or not? Um, I'd love to hear something that confirms I'm missing something really obvious over to you. Uh, so here's the thing. We talk about the idea of open-handed and closed-handed issues a lot on this podcast. This is one of the ones I'm most bummed about being an open-handed issue because there's not a ton of clarity on this and people that I really respect intellectually have come down on both sides of this. Um, and I don't even know, we didn't talk beforehand, so I don't know if me and Aaron agree on this or not. So we'll, we'll see, I guess, as, as we go forward on this. Um, but what I'm going to do Is explain where I land, uh, but do so with, yeah, basically with grace and saying, listen, I'm not saying like this is the right way for sure, uh, but this is something I've really thought through and this this is where I land on it. So again, it's an open-hand issue, even if it doesn't feel like it, it should be at times. Uh, And I guess if you're new to the podcast, when we say open-handed and closed-handed issues, there's issues that we hold with a closed hand. And what that means is we don't compromise on that. It's like, is Jesus Christ God? Yep. That's you, you can't be a Christian and not believe that. That's a closed-handed issue. Open-handed issues are issues where we would say you can absolutely be a Christian even if we disagree strongly about these things. And yeah, this would They're be- not salvation right. dependent. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. So to go kind of point by point through the question, for the parable of the sower, so he mentions that um, Jesus' parable of the sower suggests that people can think they're saved or get caught up in the moment, but in fact, they weren't. I think that's exactly what it's talking about. It's not, this This parable is not talking about people who experience the true life change of salvation. It's people who hear the good news. They think, oh, that's awesome. And they kind of go along yeah. for a while and then they fall away. So I, I don't think that parable is talking about loss of salvation as much as it's talking about people who hear the gospel, like it, but never really have their hearts changed. Um Another passage to think through, or sorry, I guess I should say for the second point, so you say, um, but being a Christian for, or in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't know you if you acted like a Christian, but didn't really believe it. But being a Christian for ages can have a tipping point where you're just kind of going through the motions. Um, I think it's really important to differentiate between seasons of either sin or complacency with actual loss of salvation. Um, If you're a Christian you're and you, if you're a Christian for any period of time, you're going to have seasons where you, it just feels like you and God are completely in sync, or you're moving through, and then you're gonna have seasons where it's hard and and God feels kind of distant, and you're having to work through those. Um, it's very dangerous to interpret those seasons as like, am I losing my salvation? Am I not saved anymore? No, that's not what's happening. So that's just the natural we live in a broken and fallen world. That's the natural outcome of that is that as Christians, we're going to have seasons where things are going. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to, to, to say things are going bad and going great because I think also God intentionally lets us go through dark seasons to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. But I would say if, if you're walking through a season and you're thinking God feels so distant and you're working through that, you're praying through that um, and you're, you're trying to you know kind of work through that, that situation, that's probably evidence that salvation is not the issue, right? Like if you're earnestly desiring, like I'm trying to work my way back into this, that means, yeah, that, that means you're desiring a relationship with God, which is exactly what um, those who have experienced his salvation would do. Um, the other important passage to think about, so I add this one, it wasn't the question, but I think it's important to say... Um, is there's a passage in Hebrews, and this is what it says in chapter six, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so this is the passage that I think is most kind of... What's going on here? Because there's a couple different ways to interpret this, and both of them have really interesting implications. Because the number one, if if for the people who say, um, I guess to, just to be clear, I don't land in this camp. I, I I believe I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I guess is the way that I would come down on this. Um, for people who say that you can lose your salvation, this is a very common passage to point to because that does seem to be what it's getting at. The weird part of that is it seems to imply, or if if you're fully interpreting it that way. What it would also mean is that if you're saved and then you lose that salvation, it can never come back, which I don't think most people, and this doesn't make it right or wrong, but I don't think most people who hold that you can lose your salvation also hold that it can never come back again. Um, And so so that's a really, if if you're fully interpreting this passage that way, I think that's a really weird implication for it particularly because it it just it doesn't seem consistent with what we what what is presented to us about salvation later um particularly with and and this is where it gets difficult right i think of peter where he has really high highs and really low lows now probably never loses his salvation through any of that like i would probably <coughs> i would probably hold that he just has really dark moments um but god continuously brings him back from the brink um, the other way you could interpret this and if, as particularly if you're someone who believes that you you cannot lose your salvation is that it's talking specifically about the repentance of salvation that once you have repented of sin, you don't do that again so and that's kind of the um that's kind of the start of salvation right it's understanding i 'm sinful, I trust that christ's work has saved me, and I want to let the Holy Spirit work in me to become more and more like Christ. That moment of of repentance does not come around again. So even if you are um, a Christian and you kind of backslide it's a very Christianese term, but you you kind of fall away for a little bit and then come back, that moment of initial salvation repentance is not repeated. It's simply saying, and it's kind of like the way I, I say it with um with baptism is I, I, I don't encourage people who have been baptized before to get baptized again. The exception would be people who, because um, so our, our church, we're not an infant baptism church. Um, and so we believe that baptism happens when you yourself make that choice. So with people who were baptized as infants who want to get baptized as adults, I think like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I often don't counsel people to get baptized who like, yeah, I was baptized a few years ago and then I went through kind of a dark season. I want to get baptized again. Um, because for me, it's like, well, that's not that's not the issue then. It's like a rededication to Christ or a rededication to the Christian faith um, is great. But that's the initial walkthrough of salvation is not what's necessary there. Um so all that to say, if I had to sum it up, and this and again, super open-handed, this is just kind of where I've come down on the issue, thinking through it, um, I don't think that it is possible to have your life truly changed by the truth of the gospel and be justified before God and then lose that is kind of where I would come down. And again, I think there's seasons where we drift away. There's seasons where we come back. Um, But I do think it's possible to be heavily involved in church. I think it's very possible to say that you're a Christian um, and not actually be those things. And my mind there goes to like, I think the biggest example that we have in the new Testament is Judas who walked with Christ for years, was counted as one of his disciples. He was a close companion of Jesus um, and I don't think the story of Judas is the story of a man who loses his salvation. I think it's the story of a man who was never truly saved to begin with, um, and that is revealed, and that is revealed over time. So again, super open-handed issue. Um, I, I if you want to if you want to know more about kind of the other side of the argument there's really if you want to break it down it's armenian and calvinist is usually the way these things yeah. break down um and so you can look up really good articles on both sides as far as kind of piecing together what you believe um as far as what i believe that's just kind of that's just kind of there for for you so hopefully that's helpful but yeah. but who knows
1: well and i i mean i don't i don't necessarily land fully in the camp that you don't lose your salvation um I think where you and I would disagree um, is I think there is a very real possibility um, that you can, and I think the warning of Hebrews, I would agree with you where the implication then is it doesn't come back. You don't have a second chance Um, where I, where I struggle with this and I've wrestled with this for years. I think you and I have actually had conversations years ago about this. And uh, I think the Calvinistic point is once saved, always saved, uh, that I, I wrestle with that filter. Um, and there's a whole, a whole nuances to it. Um, I think the hard part for me is this journey with Jesus is such a transformative thing, but it starts off simple. It starts off, um, in revelation and, and I mean, scripture is even clear. I don't remember if it's in John or not, but it's no one can say yes, but by the Holy spirit, right to salvation in Christ like it's the holy spirit illuminating truth that then causes us to respond with the affirmation of that Jesus is who he says he is um i think it's in john that it, that that's clear um but it's it's hard because i personally know people that have experienced the work of the holy spirit that have um been baptized in the power of the holy spirit that have spoken in tongues that are no longer following jesus Um, and, and my heart, like where my heartache comes is, is there even hope for them? Because there is something to be said about hardness of heart. There is something to be said of rebellion and falling away and choosing not to serve God anymore. Um, and, and there's some, some heaviness to that. Uh, and, and I think there is something to be said about understanding, like we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, um, and not just because of who God is as the sovereign creator, almighty God, but it also is like what we're committing to. It's, 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 it's a bigger conversation than we can comprehend. And so that grows over time where we come more and more um, into fullness and, under, and understanding of laying our lives down and picking up our cross and following Jesus every day. Um, but it is, it's a heavy, you know, it's a, it's a very big question. I think I, I, am surprised we haven't had to have this conversation on the podcast yet either. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to just be honest. I, can you lose your salvation? Um, if I'm going to answer it one way or the other is I hope not, but I'm not convinced you can't. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I I think it's just, and I, I would agree with you about Judas. Um, I'm not sure he was saved. I'm sure he had proximity to Jesus, observed a lot of cool things. I know a lot of people that, you know, and this is a universal whatever, like a exaggerative statement, but I bet you there are a lot of people that attend church that are having these good moments, um, but they have yet to yield in submission to the lordship of Jesus. Um and that's, and that's part of the the heartburn that I see, you know, I think with Judas, I think Judas had some idols that he didn't want to let go of. Um, I think of the rich young ruler that Jesus talked about, uh, who didn't want to sell his possessions and follow Christ. Judas had this, this uh, greed in him that he didn't want to relinquish. Um, and so there's different things for sure, I think, play out, but I think it... I, I think it, I think there is possibility. I think there is in, and I do agree with the Hebrew statement because that is one that I've wrestled through as well. Like I do think that means there's there, it doesn't, you can't have it back. And so that's, and so even as I think about, right. Cause then I can contradict myself and say, well, there's always a chance as long as you have breath to respond in repentance, no matter how far you go, the only unforgivable sin is, you know, lying to the Holy spirit, blaspheming the Holy spirit. Um, And we see that in, in, in the new Testament. Anyways, all that to say, like, as long as you have breath coming to the end of your life, you could do all sorts of stuff and there's grace upon grace upon grace. But when you rebel so frequently and your heart is hard, you have no desire to repent. And I think that's the that's the heartache I feel um, in answering the question. So um, my simple answer is uh, I hope you can't, uh, but I'm not convinced of that yet, so.
0: Well, I also think, this is something that came into my head as well. Um, I am very weary. And almost never, I, I would say never, but I don't want to make that make an absolute statement. Um, but I, I would almost never judge someone else's salvation. Absolutely. And, and I so, think that's the other side of it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can get, because I remember someone was talking, I was having a conversation, it might have been with you, but it was basically about, um, can you be a Christian and and do x and i was like yeah sure why not like because like i i I don't i'm not comfortable saying well this sin if you commit this sin, that's clearly evidence that you're not a christian it's like no we all struggle with sin like Mm -hmm. all, all christians um sin the evidence of being a christian is that you're working through your sin that you're putting sin to death not that all of a sudden like the lord has justified you and now you're completely perfect and sinless um and so i think as as humans it's not our place to judge the salvation of other humans, and and again, I'm trying not to be make absolute statements here. So, it is it is almost never our place to judge the salvation of other humans? That is up to God. God is making that call, um, and so ultimately, as an encouragement, if you yourself are are thinking through this and you're like, "Well, did I did I blow it? Did I is this my last? Like, did I miss my chance or whatever it is?" I would say that the fact that you desire salvation and the fact that you desire to follow the Lord is evidence that it's not
1: and and the fact that you're you're questioning whether or not you've lost it for me indicates that you're still working it out like you're you haven't rebelled, you haven't completely rejected you haven't totally fought, walked away and said screw it, I don't care anymore I don't mm-hmm. believe anymore um, And I think that in and of itself doubt is 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 a recognition of faith. It's not a, a recognition of absence of. Um, and so I, I would say if that makes any sense maybe it didn't, um, but when we doubt, I think that's a normal part of, of faith walk with Christ. Um, having doubt is not, does not mean you don't have faith. It actually means you have faith. Um, and so I think that's a layer to it as well.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think ultimately as Christians, the reality is what are we trusting in for our salvation? We're trusting in God's grace, Yeah, right? We're trusting in, uh, what Christ has accomplished. And we're trusting in the grace of God. So even in this conversation, I say, "What are we trusting in?" We're trusting in God's grace. Yeah. We're trusting that God knows our hearts, that God knows where we're at, um, and that ultimately we can trust in the the
1: perfect justice and the perfect
0: mercy of God. So.
1: Well, and and here's a question, and I, and I do this because I don't think often we get to to dive into these kind of conversations where we're not fully on the same page, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm kind of drawing it out a little bit more just because it's I think it's fun for our listeners to to wrestle through it with us. Um, and besides it's, it's not always it's, always, it's typically the case. Like I pretty much agree with that. Um, you may, you made the statement, like for, for truly saved, we can't lose our salvation. I think where I wrestle with that, and you can probably clarify for me, like when we say truly saved, what does that look like? Because salvation is a journey. Um, and I want to be careful because I don't want to overly simplify salvation, um, but I guess, I guess, what is it for you? What do you mean truly saved?
0: So it's hard because there's no, um, it's an unfalsifiable statement. The claim that you cannot be truly saved and lose your salvation is an unfalsifiable statement because there's no way of knowing that unless God himself just audibly says that happened. <laughs> like this person was saved and now they're not. Um, so what I mean, what I mean by truly saved is actually truly having your heart changed by the gospel. And, and this is, this is one of like the biggest bummer of being a pastor that we don't talk about very often. Um, but you see it all the time of people who are exposed to the gospel and their lives are changed for a moment. And then after a
1: little while they fall away and they kind of go back into the same habits.
0: Um, and again, I'm not judging salvation one way or the other. And I'm hoping that.
1: And let's be clear about that. Right. We're not, I am not I'm not asking or trying to even sidestep like, Oh, you are judging. No, I totally understand that. Right. Um, So it's like, what's that, what's that mark? Like if I'm. And that, and that's where it's hard. There there,
0: there isn't one as humans. There's no, there's no specific point where I would, I would ever go to someone and say, ah, that's it. That's the mark. You're for sure saved. Only God knows that. And so that's where it can can get frustrating having these conversations with people. Because like I said, like I, I, I put forward that statement of doctrinally, that's what I believe, um, but there's no test to it. There's no, um, there's no way to prove it false. And so it's not a scientific um, statement that I'm putting forward. This A plus B equals C. Right. That statement (laughs) doesn't work. That statement in and of itself is, um, if I, I, yeah. So and and again, you can't even get evidence of until like the end of everything, I suppose. Until until we get to Christ's return. Um, But what what I believe currently, and again, this is an open handed belief of mine, um, is that. Everyone who is spending eternity with God is, was truly saved. And everyone who was not spending eternity with God was never truly saved is what is what I would, is where I would come down to on that. Um, got it. Okay. But that
1: makes, and that and that's good sense. That makes good sense too. Yeah.
0: And again, like I've, cause I've had had conversations with people and I just have to kind of say like, Hey, like we disagree on this. I get it. And it's frustrating because I, I normally, I, I, cause I, I love our, um, like arguing in a healthy way, like I love discussing totally, it. Totally. Discussing is a better way to phrase that. Um, I love having differences of opinion and kind of just coming together and seeing like, okay, well, where is my, uh, where am I falling short of my arguments? Where are you falling kind of working all of that out? Um, so I understand that it's really frustrating to discuss that point of view yeah. when there's really no way to move, um, to move that statement
1: into falsehood. Cause here's another question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry we're drag, dragging the podcast out I should probably just kill it and then ask offline but again th- this is for me a fun opportunity to draw out and engage in conversation. I just have responses but dialogue um, Some is God, we believe baptism Holy Spirit, we believe in speaking tongues charismatic movement um, evangelical movement there's a, there's a, most most denominations will believe in aspects of the gifts of the spirit uh-huh someone experiences the power of the Holy spirit speaks in tongues
0: or just works in any of the gifts of the spirit.
1: Sure. Yeah. But speaks in tongues. Right. Cause it's an easy one to know. Sure. Um, and that's where I like the, the evidence of speaking or baptism of the Holy spirit. Like we, I can get to that point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, experience the power of the Holy spirit speaks in tongues, no longer loves Jesus. W- were they not truly saved? Do you, I guess the question then right. is, and I want to be careful cause I, I mean, we probably need to wrap up the question uh, but I'm just like as I'm processing out loud. Um, they do. Do you think you can be empowered by the Holy Spirit, or you can speak in tongues? Was it maybe not the Holy Spirit that was empowering them, and it was a, a, a my a false spirit? Like my well,
0: my gut reaction there was that it it didn't actually happen. Um, but I don't think that's the. I think we're getting to um,
1: Balaam next week right? Is and, what, yeah, that might, that, that might be a good point to have some of that more dialogue there, but.
0: um, But, but Balaam works in gifts of prophecy
1: mm-hmm.
0: is clearly not a follower of God and meets, uh, he meets an end <laughs> that is yes, very clearly true. telling very true. Um, that he's not a follower of God. And so I do think whether it's, whether it's uh, kind of, and even like Pharaoh's magicians, they replicate some of the plagues. Mm-hmm. And I think, it's it's funny because we we I think sometimes we think of it as like they did some sort of illusion to kind of fake it. Um, I think what's happening there is they're empowered by evil spirits and they're mm-hmm. and they're replicating some of the plagues, not all of them, but they're able to do some of it. And so I do think there's an aspect of that where I could see that happening. Um, my normal just kind of gut reaction to that would be that um, it probably didn't. Uh, it probably didn't happen. I guess is the way I would phrase. But again, this is also like I haven't sure, yeah. I haven't done a ton of thinking on on this particular yeah. issue, so I, I'd have to kind of. Well, and and, and this just goes to show went. you,
1: like this just goes to show you how much I've wrestled with this question. I mean, I know I I know people right who, and I would say, had a legitimate encounter with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, but it, the very the very possible the strong possibility it could have been a false spirit, and they could have been doing and and emulating what we would have known. Anyways, all that to say, um, like this is just the resting match that this question presents and it's, and it it, just to bring it all back full circle, right? Tie a a bow on it. Um, it shows the, the, the weightiness of this dialogue and it shows the weightiness of the question. It's not a simple cut and a cookie cutter answer. It's a deep theological question. Uh, at the end of the day, that I I'm convincing you already said it. Like we, we are not going to know until eternity, really who was saved. And we can know this side of eternity with some of the metrics or the measurables that Jesus gives us fruit of the spirit. How, how do they love? Like, cause that's what Jesus says. They'll know you're my followers by the way you love one another. Like there's these layers to the conversation that gives us indication that there's spiritual growth. Um, but it is like this idea of you, if, if I stand in the boat and maybe I'll let you finish with a thought after I say this, if I stand in the boat that once you're saved, you maintain your salvation because there's always opportunity to come back depending on the journey you're in. Then, then that's just part of the grace that's existing. But there's also, I lost what I was going to say. That's what I'm stalling. Um, Anyways, I don't remember now, but what well, was the uh, idea that it can, it can lead people to
0: not care about sin in their lives if they believe that like they're saved and that's it?
1: No, I don't remember. It wasn't, it, okay. but it, all that to say, like at the end of the day, uh, this is something that we will only know really truly upon eternity by seeing who who's present, who's not. Um, and it's, it goes in reading for like, this is why we've got to be very diligent and guarded and staying in alignment with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be obedient to what he asks. Um, because that's the only way that we know um, that we're, we're following the right trajectory and path. And so anyways, I just feel like I rambled at the end, I'm sorry, but it's this is just, I think was a fun moment to be able to to banter back and forth a little bit more in depth. Yeah, um, And so hopefully it doesn't bother listeners and it doesn't leave them confused or frustrated. But. Um, it's definitely a challenging question, and I'm not sure where I land specifically yet. I want to say I hope that you can't lose it, but I'm just not convinced of that yet. Well,
0: and the good news is if you got really bored listening to that, it was the last segment, so you could just <laughs> you, just you stopped, could just yep. stop the podcast and you're good to go. Um, But that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website, grove.church. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.